Hello, my name's Fleur Emery. Welcome to the award-winning Real Work podcast. Real Work is my online membership that democratizes business learning for women. We create content and community that will improve your confidence, knowledge and network by around 50% in as little as three months. And we know that because we've been measuring the data. The Real Work podcast brings you loose and lively conversations, very lively at times, <laughs> with women who have taken the women's work rule book and ripped it up and sometimes even used it for hamster bedding. We're here to show you what's possible for you in your own career. So have a good listen and enjoy. Now, let's find out who's coming up on today's episode. Hello. <laughs> this week on the Real Work podcast, our guest is Liana Fricker, founder of the Inspiration Space. Liana talks, gosh, she's got a lot of energy. She goes like the wind. She's like the Duracell bunny and of, of entrepreneurial. She really, really is. She's just so focused and energized and just gives an incredible account of coming to the UK from the United States, getting really stuck into the fashion industry in the 90s, making the absolute most of it, and then wanting to quit, realizing at um, the O2 in the middle of a... Um, what was the band she was seeing? Fleetwood Mac, I think. Yeah. Fleetwood Mac, yeah, Fleetwood Mac gig that... It wasn't what she wanted to do, and then she just flipped her life around and created an incredible, impactful women's community supporting women to, you know, be as free in their work as she is. She's an extraordinary guest, has massive energy, and if you're feeling a bit tired, plug in to Liana. Welcome, Liana. It's ages since we've caught up. I know. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. This is great. I think the last time we hung out was like still at the beginning of lockdown when things were kind of a bit like, are we all going to die? Maybe we will, maybe we won't, but let's just have some lunch and see. It was the uh, love is blind phase of lockdown. <laughs> yeah. It's really what everyone was. was watching love is blind. And at the time, the greatest travesty other than, you know, a global pandemic was the fact that Jen Jessica was her name, was giving her dog wine. <laughs> Would you go on Love is Blind? Absolutely not. <laughs> it's a great opening question, isn't it? Just lead out with a completely random question, which only has a yes, no answer. And the guest <laughs> is 99% sure to just say no and shut down the conversation. <laughs> listen and learn, kids. Listen and learn. I would never go on reality TV, ever, because you're basically giving someone else complete and total control over your narrative, your story. So irregardless of what someone says to you, this is being produced and written and contrived by people who have their best interest at heart as opposed to yours. So it would be just my luck that I'm get, I get caught out at all my worst moments and they create like this whole narrative about how awful I am because that 10% of times when I was, you know, absolutely losing it versus the 90% of times where I was actually, you know, nice and calm and had myself together. So yeah, it's a, it's a no for me for all reality TV. Good rationale. My rationale will be based on my um, wedgie count. I have quite a lot of wedgies and <laughs> I like, you know, I like that being able to live on my own and just adjust my undergarments however I please, but it's not 
photogenic. And um, in the days of high definition cameras, I think the wedgie removal would be quite headline creating, not in not in a good way. <laughs> also, I, yeah, I like a bit of a rummage up the nostril every now and again. Bit of... So yeah, rummaging, you know, private rummaging, which as I say to my kid, everyone does, including the queen. But um, yeah, it's not, I wouldn't want that on channel four. Not at all. Exactly. <laughs> so <laughs> welcome to the podcast. The Real Work podcast is um, conversations about how women have created their own job titles and their own careers. Um, so it's not one of these kind of women in business podcasts when it's just like, yes, and I smashed this and I bossed this and now I sold the company to Dairy Lee and I, you know, it's not that. Um, although you have had considerable success, which we'll definitely um, um, talk about. the It's kind of about what it was like then, how you worked then, what happened, like how you changed and what life's like now. So your story started in sort of marketing and media comms, right? Yeah, and PR. That was my uh, background. Did you like it? Tell us about the world of PR. What era was that? Because it's changed a lot, right? Oh, yeah. So I came over to the UK in the early 2000s, so like 2004. And initially, I was supposed to stay for six months. I was doing a study abroad program. I was going to study fashion in London because I've always been really interested in marketing from an entertainment perspective. So uh, prior to coming to the UK, I had an internship that turned into a job offer at a talent agency. And I kind of always knew that I wanted to do something in the, I suppose now we would call it the creator economy. In the business called show. Exactly. That's, um, that's what we're talking about, isn't it? The jazz hands. Look, yeah. Buckers, his eyes are lighting up. Buckers has been in Panto. Oh, that's super exciting. Yeah. And, and, and so it was a case of, I always knew what my strengths were. And I knew that there were certain areas that my strengths were going to be more valuable than others. And, and plus the fact that, I, I learned really early on that I'm not the kind of person that can do anything that I'm not interested in, because if I'm not interested, I'm unlikely to be motivated. And if I'm not motivated, I'm highly likely to not do it. So <laughs> for me, it was a case of ensuring that all the stars aligned with regards to me being interested in it, which would then lead to me being motivated by it and capitalizing on my strengths. So when I decided to do the study abroad program, I kind of knew that I wanted to go into the world of fashion because being in London and, and, and all of that, it meant that I would have access to it in a way that I didn't in the US unless I moved to say somewhere like New York. So it actually was like a nice way of comparing uh, my experience as a talent agent intern and what I thought perhaps I could also do, which would be PR, working in fashion, that kind of a thing. And so I got an internship at this really cool uh, fashion PR startup at the time called Boudoir PR. And I loved them. They loved me and they offered me a job. Now, as luck would have it, uh, my first night out in London, I had one of those love at first sights moments. I saw this guy across a bar. He saw me. I went up to buy a drink. He was there. He offered to buy me a drink. And Slow down. This is too good. <laughs> yeah. And it was one of those where I, I, I basically, I found the guy, I found the job, and it just made sense to stay. So got married because that was the easiest way to do it logistically. And that sort of started. And because you were madly in love and you'd met well, your yeah. soulmate and known instantly. 
<laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, that too. And I'm one of those people where I make decisions based on will I be up at 3 a.m. thinking about the shoulda, coulda, wouldas and regret or is it something that I can do and if it doesn't work out, I can laugh it off. And that's how I felt about it, which was if it doesn't work out, it'll just be this funny story that I tell when I inevitably go back to the U.S. and be like, hey, remember that time I went to London and got married? Or I could not give it a go and then never meet someone, end up having like 50 cats. You know, I always like would see that scene. And I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Death Becomes Her uh, with Goldie Hawn and um, oh, gosh, it's Goldie Hawn and Meryl Streep. And there's this opening scene and uh, Goldie Hawn is like in this fat suit and she's eating cat food literally out of the can. And there's all these cats everywhere. And it's like her shoulda, coulda, woulda. She like loses this guy and blah, blah. And so that's what. And was that the happy ending, the cat and the. Well, no, that was the bad part. Was that considering, I mean, that's not a terrible outcome in in my opinion. Just living with a happy ending for a lot of people. (laughs) Loads of animals and just (laughs) eating whatever you want whenever you, I mean. Yeah, it's a coin flip for me. Well, I don't know. I didn't really envision a life eating cat food out of a can. No, but she's eating. She's doing. She's living life on her own terms, Liana. (laughs) She's doing. She's as free as the wind. So, but the guy turned out to be the right guy. You, you, you got lucky. You're a match. Guy, everything. But, but it's, but it's, it's one of those things where I generally make decisions not about whether something is definitively right or wrong, but more if I think about it if the consequence of not doing something is I will constantly, it will show up at like inopportune moments in the middle of the night, this, that, and the other, it'll be like, but what would have happened if that's worse to me than doing like a something. sliding doors moment? Mm. What, what exactly. would I've done if mm. exactly, exactly. And that really was my sliding doors moment. So then I went into the world of PR and I, I loved it, but then I didn't in the sense that I, didn't really vibe with fashion. The women that I worked for were awesome. I learned so much from them, um, especially when I, I wonder think- if it, I wonder if it wasn't as creative as you'd imagine. Young Liana thinking, I'm going to go to this new city that is just full of inspiration, which is completely different, which is, you know, culturally arresting. And this is going to give me, this is going to be my battery. And maybe you just came over and found that there's just a system and a hierarchy. No, it wasn't that. In the first instance, it was very creative because I was working for a startup. I was the first employee. We sat at a table and this is, and this is my thing. Like I have so much respect uh, for the two women who started the company, even more now that I have my own business. I think having a business is a lot like having a baby in the sense that you don't realize how hard it is until you try and do it yourself. And so when I think back to these women who were 27 years old, they started the company six months before I joined from their bedroom. By the time I had come in, they had an office space on South Moulton Street, so not cheap. And within my first six months there, we had taken on three other office um, offices within our in our building to create showrooms. So they were growing really quickly. They, they, by the time I'd been there six months, I think we had two other employees. So they were growing really fast. That sounds amazing. It's quite different to some of the other, we've had other guests who talked about the world of fashion and it has sound like they've been really squeezed and inhibited, but that sounds like a great situation for you. Well, yeah, cause it was a startup and, and the women who started the company, especially the, the woman who now um, is still leading it, Sally Ann Stevens, she was always, she was one of those great leaders and great bosses where she wanted to be a better boss than she had. 
And you could, you could see that in the way she approached everything in the same way as a parent, you know, like you always have those moments where you think back, oh, my parents did this or that. And so I want to, you know, go around that. I, I want to be a little bit more conscientious or aware of what it's like to be a kid. And I think for her, she was really aware of what it was like to be an employee. She taught me loads. I got to be really proactive because it was a startup. And the reason why I left that was because I, I felt like I needed to go somewhere bigger because I wasn't patient because I didn't know that growing a business takes a bit of time. I didn't know that there are always going to be moments, especially in the first kind of three to four years where things will be, will feel really awful. Things will feel great. And that will always be this constant ebb and flow of energy. And what I was expecting because of my lack of experience was effectively a corporate organization. And so that's what I went to go and do. I decided that I would go somewhere bigger, um, to learn more, to work on bigger brands. Because again, at the time we were working on other startups, which now I know it makes sense, you know, and they've since have gone off to, you know, they work with Boohoo and this and that, like it's a huge company and it's, it's still being run, um, in the same way, you know, really thinking about the people. Uh, so I went to a big agency and that was interesting because that's where I learned project management. I did, that's where I basically learned community management. I did it on a global level. Um, that's where I learned how to fake work in the sense that when you work for a big company, there's not a lot of opportunities to be entrepreneurial. And yet you don't always have work. There are some times when say you're waiting for feedback from something from a client or the project has ended and it might be a couple of weeks until you get briefed on something new. And as someone junior within the company and a large company, you know, billable hours, this, that, and the other, it's not necessarily um, cost effective to let people just create their own opportunities. You know, there's a structure and a hierarchy and this, that, and the other. So as someone with a lot of energy, a lot of creativity, who'd come from a startup where if I came up with an idea, you know, at B, they were just like, go for it. You know, I had almost com not complete autonomy, but I could make things happen. And they were encouraging me to make things happen because we were a startup. It was like graft. Like I did everything from cleaning to pitching to, you know, I did everything and we all did everything. It was, you know, an all for one, one for all in a big corporate organization where you've got, you know, people who, who are responsible for the cleaning and the delivery and the, this and the, that you, you kind of just have to sit there and do the job that's on the piece of paper even if there's no work to do. And What's so it's fake fine. work. Well, well, it's just, there's no work to do, but in, in, in that time, and I would imagine, you know, that still exists now. And this is part of why I really love the idea of more companies moving towards remote. You know, there just, there wasn't anything to do, but you had to show up. And I just could never understand that. It's like, I have to be here for eight hours, but there's nothing to do. And not only is there's nothing to do, I'm not being encouraged to be proactive. So you really just want me to sit here all day. <laughs> Did you ever say that to anyone? Like, what's their answer to that? Or what are other people doing? Are they? I never said anything about it because at the time, that's just what work looked like. And I yeah. didn't have enough experience yeah. to, to know. And so what I instead did was I went to another startup because I've always been I've always loved working on big brands and in the entertainment space. So I found my Goldilocks moment and I found my perfect fit, which was a startup, but it was a little bit bigger. It worked in the convergence of technology, culture, fashion, art, design. 
it was really based on kind of the content uh, community commerce model. But this was back in 2005 before anybody was really doing it. And it was started by the the team that uh, founded the magazine Sleaze Nation, which was the precursor for Vice. So they were some of the first people doing that brand um, and creative content partnerships. So that's where I learned how to. The beginning of influencer marketing. Not even influencer marketing, like, you know, Adidas sponsoring, you know. Um, so one of our one of our campaigns that we did was with the GLA and it was all around getting people to uh, stop using unlicensed minicams. And so we had a collaboration with Resident Advisor. We made unique content. We created these like handout cards that we would we would um, give to street teams to send out at like fabric and all the clubs in London. And we had huge reach. And and what I loved about that was the GLA could say to us there was a market difference in the amount of people using licensed mini camps. They could see the impact of our work. Similarly, we worked with the GLA on a campaign called Wake Up to Rape, which was all around challenging some of the stereotypes that women in particular hold against rape victims. And we did that with this whole 360 campaign where we had tube ads and we had radio ads and we came up with the whole thing and we could see the impact that that made. And so you know, that's always been the kind of marketing that I wanted to do. And this agency allowed me to do that. I worked on Bacardi's global music campaign, which again, like we were the first people working with YouTubers and getting Bacardi to pay them and and all of this. And this was in 2005, 2006. So super, super early, you know, um, people weren't really using Facebook, but I, I was because I was lucky enough to, I guess, lucky. I was on it really early because my friends from the U.S. and university, you know, there's like, Hey, there's this thing and you need a university address to be able to use it. And I still had mine. So I was really early on Facebook, you know, all of these things. And, and so I did that for about five years and then I burnt out. I'd been traveling the world. I was just about to say, Buckersy, you're feeling exhausted just saying this. Buckersy's face was just like, I need to have a lie down. Where's my beanbag? Yeah. I'm waiting for you to take a breath, Liana. (laughs) Sounds like what the thing that strikes me, the thing that jumps out about all of this is that you had so much self-awareness and so much autonomy. You're really steering. I, at the same age when I was in, yeah, when I was in my 20s, I definitely identified with kind of like a crisp packet in the wind. (laughs) That was how I felt. I just felt like (laughs) quite empty and like I was just being blown from one thing to the other. I didn't have a sense of choosing. I had a sense of waiting to be chosen and then trying to make the best of it. So I really also, when I look at your CV on LinkedIn and you look at these businesses, often when we talk to people, they just kind of give us this story about um, working for other people was terrible because I'm an entrepreneur and now, you know, now I'm liberated and you have such a kind of positive, this is what I got from this. This is what I wanted. This is what I thought about. This is what, this is why I did this. And this is what happened. This is what I learned. And this is why I took to the next place. You're so engaged with your own life. It's kind of incredible. Were you born like that? Yeah. I've always been like that. I've always, like I knew probably when I was about 11 or 12, what I was going to do. I remember I saw this movie, Disney's the kid with uh, Bruce Willis and he was an image consultant. And I was like, that's what I'm going to do. And and I used to really identify with, uh, you know, the show, the Rugrats, uh, Angelica's mom was always on the phone yelling at people. And I was like, I want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> and then another one was like Goldie Hawn again, uh, 
in uh, the movie uh, First Wives Club. And she's like a, a retired actress yeah. and she's running on the treadmill and working. And I was like, yeah, I want to be able to be on a treadmill and work. And so I always, again, because I'm really aware of the fact that I cannot do anything that I'm not interested in. I completely and totally design a life that I'm interested in. Otherwise, you know, I'd rather just sit on, like, stare at my phone. Like, you know, so for me to be engaged in my life, I have to be in control of my life. And I've been like that with work, everything, because if I'm interested and motivated, I bring my best. You know, I'm, I'm a problem solver. I'm really creative. I'm an eternal optimist. You know, I, I, that's just how I am. And so I will never be the kind of person who will just let life happen to them. I will go, I will go down with a fight, you know. Cool, Liana. Cool. I thought I was energetic. Yeah. I, it makes me feel like a slug on a lettuce. Buckers, how are you doing? Seriously. <laughs> Can you teach this stuff? Well, I mean, I guess the other way of looking at it is I'm a control freak. <laughs> you know, that really is the thing. I am I am a control freak. I don't I, I feel vulnerable if I'm not in control. Therefore, I will always be in control or as much as I can in, in any way that I can find, I, I want to feel like I am in control of my own destiny. And then if something didn't happen, it was on me as opposed to anything else. I don't ever want to be a victim of circumstance. I don't think that's a control for you. That's someone who has like autonomy and drive and focus because with control freakery, that's associated with them um, sort of magical thinking and um, superstition and habitualized behavior where you just wind up and up and up and tighter until you're just, you know, in your room on your own eating your, your crackers and whatever. I don't see you like that. It's one of those things that something, a lesson that I learned really, really early on was the fact that, you know, it's not important to think about what you want to do. What is important is to know what you don't want to do because those are your boundaries. Then you choose from what's left. We often spend so much time thinking about what do I want to do? What do I want to do? And I mean, that, that, that list is limitless if you don't have boundaries. So I always start with what don't I want to do. So when I had my burnout, I knew, and it was this moment of clarity. I was like, I don't want to do this anymore because I can't see where I go from here. I'm what did burnout look like? What was it like for you? Well, it had been something that had actually been building up for a while and I just hadn't realized it. So I think in the first instance, I thought it was a quarter life crisis. Uh, and one of my work colleagues, he used to sit across from me and him and I would just be like, this is all bullshit, right? And I was like, I think so. Yeah. And we were almost like looking at each other for validation. Like, are we the only one who sees how ridiculous the system is? It's like, no, you're not alone. Like maybe it's just the two of us, but you're not alone. So I thought it was a quarter life crisis. Um, and I let work kind of mask a lot of it. So I was really busy, you know, I was traveling all the time and I didn't have any other responsibilities other than my husband and, and, you know, he was doing his thing in his career. So it was kind of fine. And then there was this moment and, and then it started to become like, I didn't want to go to work as often. And I'd be like, oh, I just really, I really can't be bothered. Like this is so much effort. And, and I'd be like not engaged with what's going on in all of these things. And so it, I had this moment of clarity and I remember it was the, the weekend that Fleetwood Mac played at the O2 and because I was working with uh, Bacardi's music program. We did a lot with like agents and this, that, and the other. And we had flown some DJs over from New York and we were all having this party. And I just looked around and I was like, 
I don't want to do this anymore. I'm getting too old. And my options are really limited because it's now 2008. The credit crunch has happened. Everybody that I know is losing their jobs, especially in advertising, like just wholesale budgets being cut, companies being shut. So it was like, you know, if you had a job at this age of the game, you weren't going anywhere because most people were being let go. And so then it was like, okay, well, what are my options? Okay. I can go into a, another big agency, which I knew I didn't like, and I'll have to play politics, which I'm not good at. And I just don't do. So that's not really an option. And if I did do that, I'd probably be let go because everybody's cutting everything. So last out or last in first out, I can go and try and find another startup, but then I'm going to have to do all this again. And the reality is I'm just not that engaged because when you're working with big brands, the, because they're big brands, they don't necessarily need you. And so I was finding myself more and more working late and just thinking Bacardi's going to sell another bottle of Bacardi, whether I'm here or not, you know, it's a huge brand. There's, you didn't really care. Well, it wasn't even that. It was just like, I couldn't see the impact of what I was doing because it's so big, so big. There was a time that that time was lots of people started to wake up before that people hadn't really thought about it. You know, they thought about what a great tango commercial that was, but they didn't think about if you should be marketing tango to kids very much. It's sort of exactly. like there was a, there was a whole thing happening, wasn't there? Exactly. And I think because I, on the one hand was working with, you know, a lot of drinks brands and everything that goes along with that. So parties and traveling and blah, blah. And then on the other hand, I was able to do impact community driven work with the Greater London Authority. I knew that I wanted to focus in on that. And so I decided to really lead um, a, a, a big campaign for them. I then also decided that because I couldn't figure out what I was going to do with my career, I was just going to have a baby because <laughs> I was married. It was at that time. And, you know, like holding my hands up, I had the privilege of knowing that I can do that and figure out what I'm going to do professionally later, because the reality of the situation is I don't earn enough money to work and have a kid. And so I knew that the choice to work was going to be taken out of my hands if I had a kid, because the numbers are the numbers. I couldn't afford on my salary, the childcare and the transport and all of that, plus the mental drain that that was going to have. So it was one of those, this, this, this just kind of ticks all the boxes. I'll have a baby and then I can figure out what I'm going to do for work later. Did you, <laughs> did you, do you ever feel confused about anything? <laughs> that's the question that's in your mind, isn't it, Buckers? Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> do you ever just think, oh, I'm not sure. No, I'm not sure about exactly that. What she does and doesn't want. All yeah, the time. Just, yeah. Do you ever get to dinner time and just think, oh, I don't know. I what shall it. I, what shall I have on my toast? Oh, I'm not sure. Mm. Oh, I don't know if I like that anymore. Do you ever, do you ever, or one of my favorites is when um, ding, ding, the delivery person comes and you think, oh, what's that? And it's something you bought in the middle of the night on Instagram. You're like, what does that even do? And like three months later it arrives <laughs> and it's for like bleaching your ear hairs or something. Like, do you ever just think, oh, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know who I am. <laughs> asking for a friend no. <laughs> asking for a friend but again I think it's because I, I, I mean I obsess over these things I obsess over them um, and I, I think about it constantly. if you obsess you'd be miserable I'm looking at the hat face 
having come from grinding addiction and recovering all that and spent thousands of hours with people in active addiction, when you use words like obsessed, I just think, you're not obsessed. Look at you. You just look so well and happy. You just like look like you're living your absolute best life. So I don't, I'm not, doesn't obsession eat you up? Isn't that supposed to be something that just kind of eats you up being obsessed with things and like, you know, you'd pay a terrible price for being obsessed. Mm. No, I think obsession is just another manifestation of drive and ambition. Right. And so when I say obsessed, like, yes, I look calm and I look relaxed, but my mind moves at a million miles an hour. And so some of the things that I've learned, especially through entrepreneurship, is to own who I am, to just be okay with it. Like, this is me. And sure, I have the thoughts that come in and that and the other, but sometimes I let them pass. Sometimes I don't, you know, I meditate, I do this, I do that and the other. But I think for me, the the most important thing that I do is I just accept who I am. I am who I am, right? And for good or for bad, that's where it is. And and, and back to what I was saying before, you know, I'm just, I, I play to my strengths. I don't do things that I'm not good at. <laughs> do you know what they are? Yeah, I am really great at talking to, inspiring and organizing people, galvanizing them, getting them to see what they're capable of, getting people to see opportunity. Because when you're talking about, you know, letting space for the magic, I don't believe in luck. I think that we all have circumstances and we all have the ability to kind of take advantage of opportunities. It's not about that. It's about whether or not you're able to see the opportunity. And I think that's then where you get into privilege and upbringing and all of these things. Um, Lauren Curry, who is uh, a member of my community and someone who I really totally admire, um, the founder and CEO of Upfront, we were having this conversation uh, around International Women's Day. And she said, you know, I think while we're having a conversation around should we build our own table or should we get a seat at kind of the main table? We need to have a conversation about the fact some people don't even see that there's a table. And I think that's really important. It's the same with opportunity. People talk about luck, but I think it really is just the ability to see an opportunity and then say, yes. She shares your clarity. She shares your clarity, Lauren does. We were lucky enough for her to be a guest speaker in real work. And it was incredibly impactful. People still talk about it and recommend that people go and watch the video of her recording because mm. she's so clear in her messaging and yeah I'm not I'm not surprised you're such a good match I, because no one's gonna wait for you to do anything no one's gonna give you permission to do anything you have to give yourself permission and if you have a no regrets kind of attitude and I think for me the thing that I always remind myself of because I'm kind of an over-the-top person and and so I always say you know what I come at everything from a place of goodness, kindness, and I'm just trying to give back into the world. And so long as I can go to sleep knowing that, it doesn't matter if maybe, you know, I don't have a huge social media following or it doesn't matter, you know, whatever, that I'm not like a cool online kid or whatever it is. Because every day I show up trying to be kind, generous, you know, leaving the world a better place today than it was yesterday. And I think for my own self, I'm always just thinking, you know, I'm going to be less of an asshole today than I was yesterday. Everybody, you know, it's just, that's all we can strive for. It's just micro progress, like 1% every day. That's the work, isn't it? The recognizing when we've done the wrong thing 
recognizing our assholeness. Yeah. And it's always tricky about ego, you know? And I think as an entrepreneur, that's like the first thing you got to do is just like, put your ego in check, like come mm. from a place of service. And we all do it. You know, you scroll on social media and you become like one of your competitors and you're like, that's shit or whatever. Like, <laughs> no, 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 no. Go check that because there's something that you can learn from how this person is doing it. Because whilst I'm sat there and I'm literally speaking from my own experience, sat there not posting anything because I'm just like overwhelmed. There's a million things happening. I'm like, that person is showing up consistently. So there's something you can learn from that. You know, or just I learn about my own assholeness, um, which has been considerable. On the assholeometer, I um, I can flick right up like a Geiger counter, unexpectedly, and be completely justified that I'm reasonable and in the, in the right until I've really been corrected and kicked in the nuts and have to go. Yeah, I definitely was massive asshole then. <laughs> and uh, what it's about the the recognition is yeah when i look at other people um that sense of like i can't learn from them well i can't learn from them that's like a massive red flag for me and they're they're the people that i learn most from because i just think wow why do you think that flow why do you what's that about and sort of working out what those kind of default um negative character traits are in oneself is so useful can you say oh yeah that's because i'm a snob <laughs> oh yes that's because i'm a bit you know a bit racist about them I, that's why i yeah that's because she's very sexual and, I'm, and that makes me uncomfortable it's like like our little go-to things and it's just like yeah we all have our own combination of our own um particular whole fingerprint Totally. And I think there's something in being able to like, look at something critically. I think it's important. Some things just are kind of BS. You can still learn from them, but I think it's important to be able to have both of those conversations with yourself, you know, to be able to say on the one hand, Oh, that's obviously being very driven by my ego. But on the other hand saying, but objectively, this is feeding into a value system that I don't subscribe to. I think you can say both, you know, and I think it's important, especially in entrepreneurship, to be able to look at both sides of that. Tell us about um, Inspiration Space. Ah, Inspiration Space. So after my burnout, I kind of went to the Surrey countryside, had a baby, and I did the kind of stay-at-home mom thing for about 12 months. And I was like, okay, I'm done. <laughs> like, <laughs> was, was that meant to be your rest? <laughs> well, because the thing was like my brain turned back on. It was like, I couldn't control it. I really, it's like, have you ever seen the, um, the, the ballet, the red shoes? And yes. it was like the red shoes. It was oh like all of a sudden God, the break gave me the red shoes. And all of a sudden I was like, ideas. You know crazy. that story, Buckers? <laughs> no, I so don't. A, it's about a girl who um, covets a pair of red um, ballet slippers in the window of a shoe shop. She comes from a poor family and her mum says, um, you know, that's your selfishness and your ungodly. And um, she begs and begs. I don't know how she eventually gets them, but when she eventually gets the shoes, she puts them on and prances around, looking at herself in the mirror, so happy. But because she's been so ungodly and gone against the word of God, the shoes keep dancing and dancing and dancing until she's so exhausted that she goes to the local woods and begs the local woodcutter to hack her feet off at the ankles. <laughs> and, um, yeah, my... Um, that was a book that used to get read to us in the 70s. So just to catch you up there. 
And you were feeling like that after the birth of your first child, Liana. Let's go back. Well, it was just this element of not the ungodly and all that. It was just like all of this energy, The frantic, the wanting to just go and go and go and go. Well, well, again, because like my experience with the red shoes, I used to be a dancer. And so the red shoes was always like, you know, it was like this huge dance and, and everyone did it. And it was, it was, you know, you get to, to be the, the ballerina in the red shoes, which was not me because I've got basically flat feet. So not ideal for a point dancer at all. Um, but so better than all- us, don't worry. <laughs> and so it was this whole idea that, you know, all of a sudden without trying, it all turned back on. And it was like this pure creativity that I hadn't felt since I was probably 12 years old when I realized what it was I wanted to do. And I was like, okay, well, the good news is this is inherent. Like it wasn't something that I learned. It's coming easily. It's just doing what comes naturally. Such a good feeling. And that gave me the motivation. I was like, okay, I can do something with this. So I started consulting and that was really cool. And then ultimately what was happening is I was kind of figuring out what I wanted to do just by taking advantage of opportunities. I was working with bloggers in the U.S. and helping them kind of commercialize using that expertise that I'd had with the brand band partnerships. I was working with some startups in the U.S., helping them with their kick, um, Kickstarter campaigns based on what I knew about seeding content out to groups of communities and PR and this, that, and the other. So basically just leveraging this pick and mix skills and applying it to stuff, to problems that I found interesting. And I was looking around at toddler groups and this, that, and the other, because I was working, I was working in the evenings because I was working for companies in California. And so during the days I was, you know, with my kid. And I just remember this moment where there's all these women running around chasing toddlers. And I had conversations with them and I could just imagine these imaginary speech bubbles, like lawyer, you know, hedge fund manager, teacher, accountant, everyone running around wiping noses and like singing songs and stepping in crusty, you know, breadsticks. And I knew that I had something to do in the evening. Like this did not define me and they didn't. And it wasn't because I was smarter, clever, more driven, any of that. It was just, I saw an opportunity. I created an opportunity where there wasn't one. And I kind of believed that if I could show them what was possible, they could see it too. So it wasn't that they didn't want to do it. They didn't know it was possible. And so then I felt like all we have to do is show people what's possible and they will become motivated and inspired and all of these things. So in the first instance, inspiration space started as an alternative to traditional networking groups in the sense that I felt that if I could get women together um, in the first instance and Instead of having it to be like really awkward networking conversations where you kind of shove business cards at people, you would do something that I had learned when I was working at uh, my previous company, which target people by their lifestyle interests, you know, so create experiences that are going to be really engaging and fun and to a certain extent, distract people away from the awkwardness of networking so that they get this real value add. So it was all around creating, you know, supper clubs and brunch clubs, but in unusual spaces and hidden gems and all of this, because if you could get people having conversation, teaching each other, magic would happen. And about three months into starting Inspiration Space, I went on the University of Winchester's Women in Digital Enterprise program, and that blew my mind. I learned how to create a business model. And I learned that I had big ambition But what I couldn't do was see exactly how I was going to get from where I was to where I wanted to go. I also realized that I had really strict boundaries. I knew what I wasn't prepared to do because at the time, inspiration space had really taken off. I was getting 
a lot of requests from like we're based in Surrey, but I was getting people from Oxford and Bristol. Like, would you open this up here? Would you franchise it? Da, 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 da. And I always knew that what I had done, I had done because I was so on the, I was so on the ground and very hands-on. And so the only way to do that would be to go to all of these areas and, and either train people or kind of do that. And I know I, I didn't want to. So I, I came out of the university of Winchester's program with two mentors and an understanding that I was prepared to stay small in order to keep the purity of what it was that I was trying to do. So I didn't want to just grow it and like blitz scale. And so that you'd still love it, right? Because all of that energy channel channeling was become, was coming through you because you really loved it. And if you'd have diluted that by scaling up before you were ready, you wouldn't have loved it anymore and you would have lost interest. Well, it just would have, you know, I think that's a great word to use, dilute. It's, you know, there, there was a, there's, there, and there still is, there's this wonderful magic. And I don't believe that scaling at all costs is necessary. And so luckily through the program, I ended up with, you know, two mentors and we worked together over about 12 months to look at, okay, what could this be? Because what we also realized was that we were trying to solve two sides of the same coin. They wanted to give back following successful careers in venture capital and management consulting to entrepreneurs to be like, look, these are the tools and the strategies that businesses use to grow. It's, you know, pretty foolproof. If we can teach you how to do that and give you the support that you need, you can really grow a business. And what I was trying to do was to get people together from a community perspective and help teach them marketing and, and how to bootstrap and just be really clever and creative. And so we decided to put those two things together so that we could bring that entrepreneurial education and community together under one roof. And, and that's what we do now. And breathe. Bish, bash, bosh. Amazing. And it's thriving. It's absolutely thriving, isn't it? And you're, and you, you're growing in the pandemic. How did that affect it? The pandemic was a very strange blessing in disguise. So we were about to launch a network of physical digital enterprise hubs in January, 2020. And we had three up and running by February and then the pandemic hit. And I just made a call. It's like, right. We, I was like, I've arranged for us to have a 30 minute crash course in zoom and tomorrow we go. <laughs> and that's, we did. So we brought our, our kind of our, our pilot program at the time, which was a mastermind. We brought that online and, because everything was digital, it meant that, you know, our reach expanded massively. So we now have community members in Scotland and Croatia and Nigeria and the US, Australia. Um, and, and it just turned us into this borderless entity. It also showed, I think, the, the lack of support for businesses that fall outside of kind of a governmental defined status quo you know, 76% of businesses in the UK don't employ anyone. And yet when you look at a lot of targeted support for businesses, it's for people, it's for companies with employees. Yes. And yet, you know, and yet you've got more and more people starting businesses, working for themselves. One of the highest growth industries, um, when you look at the number of new businesses started in 2020 was e-commerce. I wonder how many e-commerce business have employment as part of their growth plan as opposed to technology, inventory, these kinds of things. So there's this huge divide. 
between where business actually is and what business today looks like and what I think institutions and, and the government think business looks like. And, and, and they're not being catered to, they're not being uh, provided for. And that's really the space that we're trying to occupy, which is, yeah, everything they're trying to teach the larger companies, you 100% need to know. And we can teach you that. Lauren Curry's influencing government at quite a high level. And um, hands up who thinks Liana should get get in there too. Two hands each up in the air. Seriously, get involved. Get in there, girl. I used to say, I don't know why I said that, I'm so sorry. Well, I did used to say that I wanted to be the prime minister. And in 2019, I was invited to Downing Street and I met Boris. I was part of a... Oh, a, yeah, there's a photograph of you, isn't there? Wow. Yeah. And I was part of a think tank of, I think there was 15 businesses, including the founders of Deliveroo, the CEO of Music Magpie, which when I met him, I had a total fangirl. Mom's like, I love Music Magpie. <laughs> oh, my God. Did you meet Boris? Did you fan, did you fangirl yeah. Boris? I didn't fangirl Boris, but I did meet Not Boris. So much. And what was really interesting about that was that every business has the same challenges from me at the time, my company had been only going for a year to music magpie, same, same problems, you know, businesses want to speak to other business owners. They need money. You know, I think what, again, what the institutions think businesses need and what businesses actually need are not necessarily in alignment. And one of the things that I love about entrepreneurship and one of the reasons why I've rethought about kind of going into politics directly is that having your own company is one of the only stroke greatest vehicles that you can use to create the world that you want to see. Because we know that companies have power. And in a lot of ways, the bigger your company is, the more power you have. Imagine if Amazon had my attitude, like, right. Imagine what the world would look like if I was CEO of Amazon or if you were CEO of Amazon, you know what I mean? Like, Business is a huge vehicle. Entrepreneurship is a huge vehicle for social good, you know, looking at how we solve the climate crisis, all of that. Businesses are beautifully positioned to take on those grand challenges, but they need support. They need motivation. They need to be connected to people. And I think what they need is an understanding that there is no one size fits all approach to entrepreneurship. All we really need to do is to keep people interested, motivated, make it easier for them to do what they want to do and, and, and allow them to sit in their own driving seats. Yes. To this. What's that thing on social media when they do a hand sign and they just say that, what she said, the, um, what do you do when you're off Liana? What do you do when we switch, when I reach my hand up the back of your cardigan and I switch you to off, what's, um, what do you do to recharge? Oh, to recharge. So I work out. I try and box two to three times a week. I absolutely love it. Just like punching things in the middle of the day. Feels good. <laughs> do you ever just watch daytime TV flicking? Just flicking. Oh, God, yeah. One thing to the other. <laughs> just think, oh, mate, cash in the attic. Flick. Just flick. Yeah, oh, I've seen that episode. Bad, you know? seen that episode. This morning. Did you? <laughs> GMTV. GMTV. It's not called that anymore, is it? It's not been called GMTV for about three decades. So when I'm feeling incredibly anxious, I watch Antiques Roadshow because for whatever... That's I, the I, creepiest program in the world. That's going to tip I, you over the edge. Banging theme tune though. I know. I get in bed and I watch Antiques Roadshow. And the reason why I do that is because Antiques Roadshow always reminds me about like, like the fear of Sundays. Mm-hmm. And I put that on 
when I feel anxious and I get in the bed, partly as a reminder of the fact that because I work for myself, I don't ever have to feel that way. Yeah, Sunday's no different to Monday in our right. world. Hooray! Right. And so I almost do that as this way of reminding me, like, look, you can watch this in bed on a Sunday, a Monday or whatever. And I get that relaxing feeling without the anxiety. And part of the reason why I don't get the anxiety is because I'm reminding myself that I'm got the ability because I have my own company, you know, I, I, it's like a form of control, I suppose. So I like even your downtime has a really, really like intricate process. Yeah. It's really (laughs) focused. I I don't want to say goodbye. This is just gold dust, but we're nearly finished. Tell us, um, what kind of a mum are you, Liana? Oh, What what does that look like? looks like this. I talk to my kids like this. Like, I really, I get into the nuance of, of life. You know, I, you, I think it's, I just, I'm not a bullshitter. I don't know how to do it, which is why I couldn't work in a big company. Cause I don't know how to play the game. Right. Like I don't know how to do it. I am who I am. So when I talk to the kids, I talk to them like this and I explain like, you know, the world is full of nuance. It's not a case of this is good or that is bad. Like you got to be able to look at everything from lots of different perspectives. And so that's what I do with them. I try and teach them that, you know, the one thing that you can control is yourself. So if you're letting someone annoy you, irritate you, all of those things, when you react, they win. You want them to lose, don't react, you know? And so I think that's really important. I am really big on getting them to just take ownership of their own ideas and and make them really confident. I want them to have that confidence and to maintain the confidence that only small children have that as you get older, the world beats it out of you, you know, like it's only because of conditioning. Do I not wear a ball gown to the grocery store? But if I was four, I would do it. And everyone would think it was really cute. You know, like (laughs) my kids said to me, um, she was doing some karate moves the other day. She's five. She's seen it on a cartoon. And I said, um, she's just getting to the age when after school kind of activities, all her friends are doing loads. They're really like full on. They're like, they're like right, we've got Monday, we've got orchestra, you know, Tuesday, we've got Japanese. Um, three, um, Wednesday, we've got business German. We do nothing. We just kind of wander around looking at wood lice, maybe put one in your mouth, see what happens, that type of thing. And um, <laughs> she's doing these karate moves. And I said, oh, you know, some of your friends go to to karate club. Would you like to go and have a karate teacher? Like, and she just goes, "Yeah, I don't need to. I'm brilliant. I'm brilliant. Amazing. Don't need to. Great. Like, and I'm like, great. So you just saved me like three hundred quid a year. Fine. Yes. And I think if that's one thing that I'm really working on conservatively now is that that self belief and being able to back myself because I think it's so easy. I think when you're as laid back as I am and as sort of focused as I am, I think the 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 byproduct of that is that my standards are really, really high. And so I hold myself to like these ridiculous standards. But what happens if you don't meet them? What's the punishment? Well, this is the whole thing is that it's every day is this, okay, it's not good enough. It's not good enough yet. It's not good enough yet. It's not good enough yet. You know, and, and I think, and that's something that I'm really working with myself on is this kind of concept of, okay, well, what are your expectations? Where are you with that? Okay. That's not good enough. Brilliant. Okay. So that's going to be your motivation. And so that means that, you know, instead of being, instead of saying to myself, I need to go from like zero to one or rather like zero to 10, then it's really more of a case of going from zero to one. So, okay, this is your objective. You want to, you know, uh, have a business of this size, or you want to be known for doing X, Y, Z, or, you know, you want this kind of awareness, you want to make this kind of impact. Brilliant. So instead of 
starting from where you are and looking at them being like, oh, it's just not good enough. It's hopeless. I'm just going to go get on my phone and watch Real Housewives, which is what I do when I'm like, I've got a million which things. One? To do. All of them. <laughs> That's All quite them. a time commitment. Who you tell us? <laughs> 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 and that's what I do is, so, you know, like, I'll, like when I, that's how I avoid stuff. I'll be like, I'm going to just go on my phone and I'll watch real housewives. And it's in that moment. I'm like, right. If that's what you, where you want to be great. Don't beat yourself up because you're not there now, but you do need to do whatever you need to go do to go from zero to one. And then you're going to have to go from one to two and on and on and on. And it's going to take time. And you're just going to have to sit there clinking away, you know, just, until you get to that point and we're starting to get closer to that point. And now I'm like, ah, okay. There's like a whole different kind of pressure and infrastructure and things I need to be thinking about and relationship that I have to manage and all of this stuff. And I, I think it's that self-belief that I'm really trying to tap into because that's what will give me the confidence and increased clarity and focus as I start to enter these uncharted territories of having, you know, a growing business. I usually just think to myself, if I think, you know, I haven't, can I do something? I just think probably, yeah, I've got a good track record. I'm capable, I'm a safe pair of hands. I expect I can. If it goes wrong, oh, well. I just kind of just try to take the, the kind of the gas out of it and just think it usually, you know, I'm quite capable. I've got a lot of energy. If I commit, usually works out. And if it doesn't, well, you know. Yeah, pint of ice cream in the Real Housewives of somewhere. Although I have a sneaky feeling that they should be watching you. Yeah. <laughs> Don't you think, Marcus? Yeah. The Real Housewife, Liana Fricker. So um, before we let you go, will you? Um, can we hire you to come and talk in real work so that we can just bottle this? Um, yeah. If you come and give us a talk. Yeah, brilliant. Let's work something out. Don't you think, Buckers, that would be amazing? Yeah. yeah. Let's just plug in the real work community to Liana for an hour. And um, yeah, you can just charge yeah. us up. You'd be a great person to speak to in the Perfect. morning. Perfect. <laughs> Thank, Thank you so much for being our guest. It's just absolutely glorious to talk to you. Your energy and enthusiasm is just shines out of you. So let's not leave it so long until yeah, we definitely. again next time. Thank you. Thank you. It's absolute pleasure. That's it for today's episode of the Real Work Podcast. Thank you for being with us. This is the part where we remind you to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. And Buckers will probably tell me off if I don't ask you to please rate and review on Apple Podcasts because apparently when you do that, our content reaches more listeners. If you're curious about Real Work, the online membership Improving Women's Confidence Knowledge and Network, head to our website, doreal.work, and sign up for our super newsletter, The Real Worker. All the details that you need to connect with us in any way, you'll find in the show notes. Well, that was a super podcast. I'm, it's so nice to be back um, back in the studio recording again after a break and after a very special break because um, I am now an award-winning podcast, the International Women's Podcasting Awards for Entrepreneurial Inspiration. I'm glad it was that one that I won. No. I'm, I'm an entrepreneurial inspirer. Do you think you I should are. get a badge made up? Definitely, and a certificate and everything. I hope it's on your LinkedIn. 
Actually, I don't. I think I need to upload it to my LinkedIn. You do, and also my profile on my, um, you know, my signature on my emails. Yeah, award-winning podcaster. So good. Congratulations. Thank you. It's just a very, very exciting. It was a very exciting thing, and um, yeah, the event event looked amazing. Yeah, it was. Oh, do you know what, Flo? It was such a shame that you weren't able to come because it was probably one of the best awards dues I've ever been to. It was really? so good. Yeah, the just oh, the atmosphere, Flo, was so it was electric. It was just full of all of these amazing, inspiring female podcasters. It was just such a joy to be involved with. Did you meet new people and everything? Oh, it was it was networking central, but in like a really not in like a you know annoying way. It was just it all happened very organically. I met this really cool comedian. They had an amazing poet there. Oh, it was just it was it was great and so much prosecco. I wore like a really jazzy outfit. It was so much fun. It was such a shame that you couldn't be there. Yeah. That's, um... Didn't you have you had a hotel you had a hotel booked as well, didn't you? Like a really snazzy one. Yeah, I did. I lost my money on the booking, yeah. Oh, that's and my so kid was ill, so that's what happens, you know, when your kid's ill, you just have to, you know, be the better person. And you booked um, your train ticket and everything as well. Yeah, I lost money on that as well. You haven't you bought a special you bought a dress especially for the occasion, didn't you? Listen, I'm glad you felt great in your outfit and it was really nice of you to step in and, you know, go up and accept the award on my oh, behalf. Yeah. That was on my behalf. Thing. Totally wasn't expecting that. Yeah, that was amazing. Well, when they announced that you'd won, everyone was obviously really excited and then they just pushed me onto the stage and there I was just... They pushed like, you. ...collecting pushed an you award. Because yeah. I did make a video in advance. I did make an acceptance speech, which I pre-recorded... Yeah, for but they didn't reason. play that. Yeah, the you got pushed onto the stage. Did you? The message didn't get through that you weren't going to make it. So that's it's a real shame. But yeah, it's, do you know what was really funny? It's almost like they sort of thought I was you when I was collecting it. I think they probably thought that I was actually you. It's so funny, bizarre. That's. Mm. I'm glad you had a good time. We got a great goodie bag. I've got a candle for you. A candle. And, um, yeah, candle. And um, some little vouchers for things and one a microphone um, and a the really nice trophy that I collected. I'll have to get that down to you at some point. I'm not quite sure when I'll be able to do that, but um, it's really lovely. Keep it. If you want to make a podcast that your audience will adore with the thought of making it yourself, terrifies you to the core then you know who to call producer buckers she knows just what to do producer buckers to make your podcast dreams come true she used to work in radio where she was poorly paleo and dab hand and audio find producer buckers on instagram at decibel underscore creative or click the link in the show notes come on everyone producer buckers if you want to hire the best producer buckers just put it to the test producer buckers just press record and she does the rest producer buckers